Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 16. This episode is called Sidebar, Bringing It All Together. Because all my listeners are extremely smart, you know the word sidebar has multiple meanings. And law, it is a conference between a judge and lawyers out of the earshot of the jury. In journalism, it's that box or separate explanatory piece outside the main article. In the history of the Americans podcast, a sidebar is an episode outside of the timeline, which at this writing has reached roughly 1536. The purpose of this sidebar is to talk a bit about the show to date and put the first 30 years of European exploration and conquest in some context. In other words, bringing it all together. I may in the future do other sidebars on historical topics that I've stumbled across or on my mind, but wouldn't get into the timeline for months or years or that have already passed in the timeline. We shall see. I am approaching this with more spontaneity than, well, most things. Regardless, we are recording this episode on April 7th, 2021 in Austin, Texas. The music credit during the writing part goes to station WWOZ in New Orleans, for my money, the best radio station in America. First off, I suspect it is obvious that the History of the Americans podcast is a labor of love. I want to thank all of you, including especially those who have listened all the way through from the beginning. It has been great so far, thanks to some recent social media love from Twitter phenom Dave Burge, there have been more than 5,000 downloads and plays of this podcast, which is very energizing so early on. I hope it is kindling a new or renewed interest in history in some of you. If you think of it, please tell one person, or even better, a teenager, because they need to know some history too. Or, you might go to the History of the Americans podcast page on Facebook and share it with your friends. Second, as I said in the introductory episode, my goal is to do three episodes on the timeline per month. We have been doing one a week since we started, but part of that was working through a backlog of episodes I had written before I figured out all the technical stuff. The timeline episodes are a bit grueling to research and write, and I have a couple of weeks coming up with vacation travel and other fun and games, so I will occasionally skip a week. I will do my best, however, to fill the off weeks with sidebar episodes, which are less time-consuming to do, so that we generally maintain a weekly cadence, posting Thursday evening or Friday morning. Next week may come a bit late, depending on how much I get done this week. Third, yes, I know the website is a hot mess. Getting that cleaned up is a priority. However, I do put maps and links on the historyoftheamericans.com that you might find useful. Now, a number of you have asked for some broader context around the European exploration and conquest of the Western Hemisphere, the implication being that I've been assuming too many facts, not in evidence, as lawyers would say. I agree. That is, to some degree, an artifact of the boundary of this podcast— the history of the people who live in the lands constituting the United States. That leads me, my reading in this podcast, to some artificial distinctions. 
Lots of detail on the many failed attempts of the Spanish to settle Florida, for example, but largely ignoring as peripheral actors such giants of Spanish exploration as Ferdinand Magellan, whose expedition circumnavigated the planet, Hernán Cortés, who conquered the Aztecs, and Francisco Pizarro, who conquered the Incas. On that same basis, we barely touched on John Cabot, who discovered Newfoundland for the English, and passed over Jacques Cartier, who explored the St. Lawrence River for the French. But we devoted a whole episode to Giovanni de Verrazzano, who explored the Atlantic coast from the Carolinas to Maine. As somebody smarter than me once said, history always starts in the middle of something, and that's a point that applies to both time and geography. So let's try and set the table a bit more completely and consolidate some of the background information that I've mentioned so far mostly as asides. In that regard, this episode will be full of generalities and therefore particularly prone to counterargument because generalities, while not necessarily wrong, always reflect the speaker's emphasis. My emphasis will, of course, be different from others, but I suppose debating proper emphasis is one of the ways history teaches us to think about how our past has made us all who we are today. So have at it. The Europe of the late 1400s was not particularly successful compared to other parts of the world. Its religion was tired and on the brink of revolution. Its universities looked to the past. Its scholars were much less interested in science and technology. They didn't call it STEM back then than their Asian counterparts. Its governments were unable to provide genuine internal security. Its nobles regarded wealth as something to be seized or taxed rather than created by trade or innovation or production. And war was endemic and constant rather than the exception. One country or principality or city-state would wage war on others for the aggrandizement of the king or prince or doge, and sometimes the spreading of the faith. Winners of these wars would almost always treat the losers very poorly, with lots of pillage, rape, and involuntary servitude of some sort, from the rendering of onerous tribute to actual slavery. War was inherently war crime, if we were to impose our modern conception of just war on the people of 500 years ago, which, of course, in this podcast we will not do. In Europe, aggressive wars of conquest would be the normal thing to do, at least until the Peace of Westphalia in 1648, more than 150 years after Columbus's first voyage. That group of treaties concluded the calamitous Thirty Years' War, which had started in 1618. The Thirty Years' War introduced new industrial technologies and techniques and was devastating to a degree even endless medieval war had not been. Perhaps 10% of the population of Western and Northern Europe had died from direct and indirect consequences. The Peace of Westphalia established the inviolability of national boundaries as a matter of international law and required for the first time that a country have a reason before it attacked another one. All that arguing we do about whether or not a war is justified or lawful or legitimate, the Peace of Westphalia was the beginning of that, 
But that was in 1648. All of this meant that when the Europeans, first the Spanish and the Portuguese, and eventually the French, English, Dutch, Swedes, and Russians, began their exploration and conquest of the Western Hemisphere in 1492. War of conquest was endemic in European culture and required no higher justification. Conquering the Indians of the Western Hemisphere was just the normal thing to do. This was not a uniquely European attitude. Almost everywhere in the world, yes, there are no doubt exceptions, I am generalizing rather than making a claim about human nature, Wars of aggrandizement or rivalry were the normal state of affairs, except when a great hegemonic empire established internal security and administration over huge distances. European cities under Roman dominion did not need the walls they would have to build during the Dark Ages after Rome's collapse. And, of course, hegemonic empires only became empires because they waged wars of aggrandizement so successfully— that they established themselves as hegemons. The empires of Egypt, the Songhai, the Muslims, and the Mongols, to name but several of the most famous, all established temporary hegemony in their interiors in all the known continents of the Eastern Hemisphere, only for disorder and violence to return when those empires collapsed. All of this was also true in the Western Hemisphere, there would be peace of a sort when a great empire emerged to impose its will and promote internal security, such as the Incas in Peru or the Aztecs in Mexico. But war was at least as normal as peace. Columbus learned this on his first stop in the Bahamas, where he understood that the friendly Taino Indians were being terrorized, captured, enslaved, and eaten by more aggressive tribes in the region. Now, Longtime listeners know that one of the rules of this podcast is to avoid drawing explicit connections between the people and their actions of the past to our present. We strive to avoid the sin of presentism, which historians define as the uncritical adherence to present-day attitudes, especially the tendency to interpret past events in terms of modern values and concepts. The history of the early European conquest and settlement of the Western Hemisphere has been particularly prone to spasms of presentism. Again, generalizing, historians who lean left often evoked an idyllic image of the Indians to highlight the social inequities and environmental damage in our own society, positioning Indians, in the words of historian Alan Taylor, as ecological and social saints living in perfect harmony with another and with their nature. This is translated to popular culture. Regular listeners know how irritating I find the Disney version of Pocahontas. We older folks remember the weeping Indian in the first Earth Day ad. That was, in my considered opinion, condescending AF. But there he was anyway degraded in the service of contemporary politics. Conservative intellectuals, perhaps in response, sometimes emphasize how warlike Indians were, always shooting at other tribes and enslaving, brutally torturing, and in some places even eating captives. To them, Indians were uncivilized savages. 
equally two-dimensional, in my opinion. The truth is, of course, neither. I like Alan Taylor's summary of the spat from his book, American Colonies, The Settling of North America. Quote, Often the debate deteriorates into a competition over who is innately worse, the Indian or the European. In fact, it would be difficult and pointless to make the case that either the Indians or the Europeans of the early modern era were by nature or culture more violent and cruel than the other. Warfare and the ritual torture and execution of enemies were commonplace in both Native America and early modern Europe. But Taylor goes on to make an additional, very important point. Without pegging Europeans as innately more cruel and violent, we should recognize their superior power to inflict misery. By 1492, they developed a greater technological and organizational capacity to conduct prolonged wars far from home. They also possessed imperial rivalries and religious ideologies that drove them outward across the world's oceans in search of new lands and peoples to conquer. Superior means enabled and ideological imperatives obliged Europeans to cross the Atlantic and invade North America after 1492. In the process, the newcomers escalated the bloodshed in the Americas to a level unprecedented in the native past. That relative European competence in the waging of war, however, does not make them relatively more immoral. Competence and lack thereof are independent of guilt and morality. We do not hold that incompetent bank robbers who fail to get away with a bag of money are somehow more moral or less immoral than the competent robbers who do. Losing the Cold War did not make the Soviet Union more moral, etc., etc. Finally, as we talked about early in the series on Columbus, it was not obvious or inevitable that it would be Europeans who first connected the hemispheres. With but small changes in court politics, religion, culture, or technology, it might have been the Muslims or the Chinese who got here first. Or, conceivably, Indians might have reached the Eastern Hemisphere first, in which case, it should be said, no one would have called them Indians. It is hard, however, to argue that in the long run, the Indians would have fared much better under any such alt-history, because old-world disease would have depopulated the new world in all circumstances. The desire to frame history as a morality play is particularly fraught when considering the history of slavery and its many forms, especially in any context that is not rigorously academic. So far, I've been tiptoeing around slavery for two reasons. The first reason is that I've not known enough about slavery to speak about it with any measure of competence. Even the definition of slavery is complex including as it does many but not all forms of involuntary and barely voluntary servitude. The circumstances of slavery in different times and places were very different, which had different consequences for enslaved people. Indeed, the word slavery itself is an example of semantic overload, carrying too many different meanings for the easy understanding of it. 
The second reason is that discussion of the enslavement of blacks in British North America and the United States, in particular, rouses more contemporary passion than perhaps any other aspect of the history of the Americans, and for good reason. Therefore, when I get to discussing North American slavery in detail, and I will, I want to address it with both the competence and nuance the topic demands. That said, there are a couple of points about slavery that I mentioned in earlier episodes that bear on our story as of the 1530s. The first is that the holding of slaves, while occasional in most of Europe in 1492, was at that point only really institutionalized in Portugal and Spain. Those Iberian powers have been in contact and in conflict with the Muslims of North Africa for some time. And Muslim pirate princes had taken many thousands of mostly Southern Europeans as slaves even in Columbus's day. When Portugal and Spain began to assert themselves in North Africa and then down the coast, they bought or captured slaves as the Muslims had done and established markets to monetize them. Hence the history of Esteban, the saga of Cabeza de Vaca. The second point is that the Spanish had conquered the Canary Islands during the 1400s, mopping up the final pockets of native resistance on the last couple of islands just at the time of Columbus's voyages. They had already built plantations there to grow sugar and had already enslaved the local natives, the Guanches, to work on them. The Spanish experience in the Canaries shaped the assumptions and practices of the Spanish when they encountered Native Americans on similar islands at similar latitudes in the 1490s. These two points meant that Spain and Portugal were the only powers in Europe with the commercial, institutionalized mechanisms of slavery before 1492. That, by happenstance, it was the Spanish who funded Columbus as opposed to the English or the French or the Genoese or the Venetians, might or might not have had an impact on the scope and characteristics of slavery in the New World, at least early on. We cannot know, but if you like playing with counterfactuals, it's certainly an interesting question to mull. There were two other things that distinguished Spain from other European powers of the 1490s. First, Ferdinand and Isabella were warriors for their Christian god to a degree that other European monarchs weren't. The dual sovereigns had just conquered the Muslim principality in Spain after a bloody 10-year war that concluded on January 2nd, 1492, and would go on to expel Spanish Jews who refused to convert just as Columbus was departing on his first voyage. They were passionate about conversion, which they believed to be in the service of the Lord. Columbus the Genoese was extremely sensitive to this, at one point suggesting to Isabella that the scant gold he found on Hispaniola had the potential to fund a crusade in the Holy Land. We can assume that Columbus knew what his lead investor wanted to hear, whether or not he was a passionate evangelical Catholic himself, and he may well have been. The second factor distinguishing Spain was that Andalusia, the region of southern Spain where many of the leading conquistadors came from, 
was the only place in Western Europe with a horse culture built around ranching and warfare. Many Andalusians were, in effect, proto-cowboys, expert in the saddle, whether herding animals or at war. They had been guarding the frontier with Islamic Iberia for centuries. This meant that the Spanish brought horses early in their settlement of the New World, and those horses conferred a huge advantage in wars of conquest against Indians, much more important than the difference, if any, between Spanish arquebuses and the Indian bows and arrows. It also meant that horses would be captured or left behind when their riders died, and they would eventually transform the societies of the Indians of North America. There are two other high-level perspectives from which we might look at the European exploration of North America. The first is geopolitics, rivalry among European powers. And the second is individual rivalry among key players in the Spanish Americas. Again, recall that the whole point of European exploration in the first years after 1492 was to find a trade route to Asia that bypassed the Muslim monopoly. Quoting Alan Taylor again, European Christians also felt hemmed in by the superior wealth, power, and technology possessed by their rivals and neighbors, the Muslims, who subscribed to Islam, the world's other great expansionist faith. Dominated by the Ottoman Turks, the Muslim realms extended across North Africa and around the southern and eastern Mediterranean Sea to embrace the Balkans, the Near East, Central Asia, and Southeast Asia. The long and usually secure trade routes of the Muslim world reach from Morocco to the East Indies and from Mongolia to Senegal. Within that range, Muslim traders benefited from the far-flung prevalence of Arabic as the language of law, commerce, government, and science. So by controlling the trade, Muslim merchants could charge high prices for Asian and African luxuries that Western Europeans wanted and even needed. Breaking that monopoly was perhaps the highest geopolitical concern of Christendom. The Portuguese committed to the route around Africa and eventually reached not only India, but Southeast Asia. The Spanish invested in Columbus's venture and discovered the Western Hemisphere, which they thought for some years to be an eastern outpost of Asia. It was only when Magellan's expedition returned in 1522 that the Spanish decisively put a fork in that idea. The Spanish did not even then forget about Asia, but they had discovered vast amounts of gold and silver in Mexico and Brazil and were understandably bent on conquering, looting, settling, and developing the New World. Substituting a Spanish monopoly for the Muslim was not exciting to other European powers. Even after it was clear that Spain had discovered a new world, through most of the 1500s, the northern European powers were still far more intent on finding a western path to Asia than in developing or settling the western hemisphere as the Spanish had done. If you are a devoted fan of this podcast, you know that Columbus had dispatched his brother to pitch the kings of both England and France, but both passed on his great enterprise. 
After the surprising discovery, they were under some pressure to launch their own search for a westbound route to Asia. Henry VII of England hired John Cabot, an Italian whose original name was Giovanni Cabotto, to look for a northwest passage through the Arctic. He found Newfoundland instead. Francois Premier, the Italophile king of France, hired Verrazzano, whose voyage left open the possibility of a middle passage somewhere between Florida and Maine. Neither England nor France, however, would follow through on their early voyages of exploration in North America because they were confronting the more immediate threat of the now very powerful Spain in Europe and the North Atlantic. For almost a hundred years after Columbus, Spanish power grew very quickly, fueled by the staggering wealth from their conquest, settlement, development, and exploitation of big swaths of the Western Hemisphere. Not only did they bring back heaps of gold, silver, and pearls from the region, but they built a vast sugar industry and introduced tobacco to European markets. The Spanish also established ports on the Pacific coast and traded silver to East Asia in return for that region's coveted luxuries. All of this tremendously increased Spain's wealth, and therefore its military capability, which was threatening to the northern European powers. As importantly, Spain's notional control over the westbound route to Asia, such as it was, threatened to put northern Europe at a perpetual disadvantage. Spain was becoming a hegemon, and that always provokes a response from other powers. The English, the Scots, and the French issued letters of mark, which are basically piracy licenses, to privateers who would hunt for Spanish treasure ships coming back from the New World. This brought pirates under the authority of the crown and at the same time preserved some measure of plausible deniability. So Europe's lesser powers did not get drawn into full-scale wars they could not win. Think of it as similar to the proxy wars of the Cold War era, in which the United States and the Soviet Union supplied arms to the other side's enemies, rather than risking direct military conflict. In addition to overt great power competition, a civil war broke out within Christianity during the 1500s. Spain's king for much of the century was also the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, charged by the Pope to represent the interests of Rome in the secular world. Virtually by definition, the Protestants who emerged in the 1500s, including the Anglicans of England, were in resistance to Rome and therefore Spain. This confessional rivalry spread in the New World and infused the conflict between Europeans with a moral certainty and vicious brutality in which religious war specializes. The earliest example came in 1562 and 64, when the French Protestants tried to establish colonies in South Carolina and then around Jacksonville. The first one failed, and the Spanish destroyed the Jacksonville colony, known as Fort Caroline, and purposely slaughtered perhaps 250 out of 300 colonists, sparing only about 50 women and children. Their purpose was both to interdict a potential base for French privateers and to prevent the Protestant infection from spreading in the New World. In turn, that lesson would not be lost on either side when the English settled at Jamestown fully 47 years after the massacre at Fort Caroline. 
As we shall see, the English picked a spot far up the James River in part to hide from the Spanish, and they posted lookouts along the coast for early warning of an approaching Spanish fleet. The Spanish, for their part, discussed internally whether they should destroy Jamestown, but didn't because they thought it would fail on its own, which it darn near did. Underneath the geopolitics, personal rivalry and ambition would drive colonization projects in every major country. The Spanish, Portuguese, and English all had their famous promoters of exploration. Some were intellectuals who operated as armchair propagandists. We've mentioned Richard Hacklite for the English. There are actually two Richard Hacklites, cousins by the same name, and Peter Martyr for Spain and others were men of action eager to win their own fortune in the New World. The Spanish, who were first, and in Mexico and Peru had captured unbelievable amounts of gold and silver, naturally had a lot of the men-of-action types. They formed their own rival networks and would compete for royal licenses to settle lands in part to outmaneuver their domestic competitors, and that would in turn reverberate in other expeditions. I'll spin through some of these machinations because they convey the rough-and-tumble political origins of some of the most important North American expeditions. No worries, though. They won't be on the test. Panfilo de Narvaez, he of the Cabeza de Vaca story just completed, had been right-hand man to Diego Velazquez in the conquest of Jamaica and Cuba. Velazquez wanted to sponsor the exploration and conquest of Mexico, but his trusty number two man, Narvaez, was in Spain in 1519. So Velazquez turned to Hernán Cortés to lead what Velazquez thought was his operation. Cortés beat the Aztecs faster than anyone imagined, cut out Velazquez, and kept all the gold for himself and his men, except, of course, for the vig owed to the king of Spain. Velazquez caught him by intercepting a message and dispatched Narvaez now back from Spain to Mexico with 900 men to bring back Cortez. Cortez, who now had literally tons of gold, bribed most of Nervais's men to abandon him and tossed Nervais in jail for four years. Cortez had a connected ally too, a judge in Cuba who took his side in the dispute, one Lucas Vasquez de Ayon, the founder of the failed colony of San Miguel de Gualdape in South Carolina. Finally, by the late 1530s, Cortes would have other rivals in Mexico, including Nuno de Guzman and the viceroy Don Antonio de Mendoza. Meanwhile, in the 1520s and 1530s, one Hernando de Soto made a name for himself as a ruthless deputy in the conquest of Central America and then, under Francisco Pizarro, the Inca Empire, and Peru. Soto had become immensely wealthy and famous along the way, but Soto was not the sort to retire just because he could. He wanted to do what Pizarro and Cortez had done, to conquer his own Cusco or Tenochtitlan. In 1537, just as Alvar Nunez Cabeza de Vaca was returning to Spain, Soto was at court lobbying for his own New World exploration license. So Narvaez hated Cortez and Ayon and won his patent with the idea of cutting off Ayon in the east and Cortez in the west. 
As you now know, Narvaez, like Aeon, failed spectacularly and catastrophically, and yet his mission set off a chain reaction. Cabeza de Vaca headed back to Spain after his eight years in the wilderness, hoping to secure a license to the old Narvaez territory to practice his theory of Indian management. But Soto had gotten it first. The Crown wanted Soto to settle North America in part because of Peter Martyr's glowing description of all the opportunity supposedly exposed by Ayon's failed San Miguel de Gualdape. Cabeza de Vaca met with Soto and decided that he did not want to go back to La Florida as Soto's second fiddle. That would not have worked out well. But nothing in their meeting diminished Soto's interest in exploring the American Southeast from 1539 to 1542. Esteban, now free, would fall into the service of Viceroy Mendoza in Mexico City and lead a scouting expedition at his behest that would result in Francisco Vasquez de Coronado's expedition from Mexico to Kansas between 1540 and 1542. All clear? All right, then. You can see that most of this rivalry operated outside the lands that now constitute the United States, which is the notional boundary of this podcast. But without knowing about Cortez and Pizarro and Diego Velasquez and Viceroy Mendoza, it's not quite so obvious why Ayon, Narvaez, Soto, and Coronado launched their expeditions when they did and why they did. So what happens next on the timeline of this podcast no promises, because I am following my muse, but after that setup, we absolutely have to cover the Soto expedition in the American Southeast and the Coronado expedition in the Southwest at roughly the same time. Then we will pivot back to the East Coast and look at the various attempts to establish permanent settlements there, including the aforementioned Fort Caroline and the establishment of St. Augustine, From there, we will probably go back west and look at Francis Drake's mapping of the Pacific coast. Sometime shortly after that, we will get to the lost colony of Roanoke, the English at last, and, of course, Virginia Dare. Even after all of that, as late as 1600, Spain and Portugal were still the only significant colonial powers in the Western Hemisphere. North of Mexico, and the territory of this podcast, the only enduring European settlements would be St. Augustine in Florida, founded in 1565, and a tiny Spanish outpost in northern New Mexico. After 1600, though, the game would change entirely. Thank you for listening to this first sidebar episode of the History of the Americans. Next time, we will take up Hernando de Soto's astonishing four-year invasion of the American heartland. I learned a lot doing the reading for Soto, including that he went by Soto, not de Soto, notwithstanding the dozen cities and counties that use the de, were the dubious branding choices of the Chrysler Corporation. Look out the window, darling. It's yours. The most beautiful car on the road. You thought I forgot, didn't you? If you like what you hear, please write an over-the-top review in Apple or Stitcher and tell all your friends, or at least the friends who want their history to be fun and interesting instead of tedious and moralizing. Please send your corrections, suggestions, pats on the back, 
and explosions of rage by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on our easy-to-find Facebook page, The History of the Americans Podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs>